0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio.
1: The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Welcome back. This is episode number 93. and Today, we're going to be talking about a recent Statistics Canada report on real estate investors. I'm a real estate investor myself and a mortgage agent. My name is Nick Hill. And I am Daniel Foch, also a real estate
0: investor, a realtor and director of economic research at Rare Real Estate. Before we get started, we want to make sure you check out our listener meetup coming up. We're combining with TCI, our podfathers for a meetup in Toronto for all of our audiences it's already 50% sold out we'd love to see you there and there is a link in our show notes to the eventbrite
1: yeah i'm really looking forward to it as well and honestly man it's been a uh, hell of a kickoff here to event season and and dan i think it's actually more than 50% sold out already so uh we urge anyone that's interested in meeting us and the tci guys and and just just the you know just the crew in general that listens from across the country I think it'll be really cool. Dan and I were just at ULI and have some great content coming from ULI and we'll share our experiences there. Uh, that was one of their biggest meetups ever with like 4,500 people. We were at the missing middle summit where Dan spoke and we, we met a ton of great listeners and just people in general there. And then I think Dan, you are, you're just backing out today, unfortunately, but I think I'm going to try to make it to the go real summit at uh the shangri-la fancy which uh one of your major i don't know uh what's the word i'm looking favorite for here speakers. favorite speakers <laughs> i was i was trying to find a better word than favorite speaker but mr john love will be um you know telling the the audience what he thinks is going on dan who's john love again
0: uh, he is the principal of Kingset, uh, Kingset Capital, and real estate. And um, sharp guy. He's, yeah, he's kind of like the the Godfather of Canadian real estate. He's just uh at that. He's one of my favorite guys. Godfathers and the Godfathers in the same sentence. Go. I love it. Yeah, we saw a lot of our listeners going out to the multifamily conference as well, which happened over the most recent weekend. We didn't get to make it to that one, but but yeah, I'm I'm enjoying all the events, um, but definitely. I think as a result of it, kind of fighting burnout a little bit as well. And and speaking of burnout, we're actually recording this
1: episode at 5 a.m. for all of you. Literally 5 a.m. on the dot. I've been up since 4.30. And, you know, we really do go to great lengths to put on this show for our listeners. And we don't miss a beat. We don't miss a day.
0: Yeah. And all that we ask is that they hit the share button and send this episode to a single friend. Like a like a person
1: who's single, why does the friend have to be single? Why is this episode like why are you bringing dating into this?
0: No like just just one of them like one single
1: friend oh okay, okay, I get it. <laughs> imagine that if everyone listening right now just sent this episode to just one friend, our audience would essentially double instantly that's you know a hundred percent return immediately. There you have
0: it, folks. The power rests in your hands to give Nick and I an instant 100% ROI. <laughs> and in return, do you like that pun? In return, we'll give you this
1: episode. This sounds like a pretty good deal to me. And on that note. Let's get into the episode here. So this is from Statistics Canada. It is a very interesting article titled, A Profile of residential real estate investors. when Dan, when you sent me this, I was like, ooh, okay. What does the government have to say about this? So we're going to tell everybody.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. And I find statistically, it's a very difficult thing to get a read on. And you'll see why, but um, a while back, I was at an event for Terranet and they talked about multi-property ownership and that's sort of like how they use or what data points they use to decide who's an investor, but we'll talk about it in a second. It might not be the best way to, to measure. They also only use the data set for like five provinces, which we're going to talk about. So if your province is left out in here, we apologize. It wasn't us. It's not us. That. Yeah.
1: And, you, was, and that's take it up with stats Canada. Yeah, uh,
0: maybe we'll have to because we have had them on the show, actually. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and I'm just curious to get an understanding if we will get a full data set at the end of this. Um, but so the report starts by saying residential properties can be owned for several reasons, usually a primary residence, but also secondary residence, which is kind of what skews this data set, but also to generate income or other investment purposes. When properties are owned by investors, they can contribute to rental housing supply. This means... You know, In a housing crisis, it can help us kind of meet that dire need for housing, but it also limits the number of properties available to buyers who want to use it as a primary residence. Um, data from the 2021 census showed that the proportion of Canadian households who own their home fell from 69% to 66.5%. This article distinguishes between investors and other types of owners to better understand what they own and the role that they play in the market.
1: This topic is especially important since in the United States, the study showed an increase in the proportion of investors among buyers from the years 2000 to 2007 when that good old housing bubble emerged and you know exploded back then. These boroughs then contributed considerably to the rise in delinquency rates During the 2008-2007 housing crisis, it also found that an increase in the percentage of houses purchased by investors in a given area led to higher prices in that distinct market. Dan, we've seen this in Canada with certain markets skyrocketing and others remaining, you know, seemingly on a normal trend. Yeah, absolutely. And north of the border, the Bank of Canada analyzed the
0: importance of investors defined as buyers who own multiple mortgage properties and found an increase in the proportion of purchases by investors in Canada in the first half of 2021. Terranet made a similar observation. CMHC also investigated investors, um, defined as households who own a primary residence and at least one secondary condominium unit. Using a survey of condominium owner households in Toronto and Vancouver, they found that 48.4% of investors in 20, 2015 stated that their secondary unit was rented, while 42% stated that they or a family member were using the unit.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So 48% stated that they had a secondary unit that was rented out, while 42% stated that a family member Was living in there. So just because you have a rental unit, I mean, you could have son, daughter, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, family, friend, something like that in there. It just it almost goes back to having just that extra space that we talk about. We were talking a couple episodes ago about, you know, the amount of empty space, 30 percent across the country of households are empty. Right. And then we also have the the five million empty bedrooms just here in Ontario alone. Yeah, I think that that that
0: stat also tells me that a lot of this data could be skewed by totally. parents co-signing, right? And and like if forty two, and even if it's not forty two percent, even if maybe forty two percent are like oh, I have to tell CMHC that my family's living in it because maybe I got a, a high loan-to-value mortgage or something like that. Because people do that. A lot of people do. Um, don't do that, by the way. But <laughs> um, but a lot of people do say, oh, it's going to be a primary residence. Or maybe they thought for tax purposes. Like A lot of people just don't understand exactly how real estate works. But let's say even if it was 25%. To me... That tells me that this data point of people owning multiple properties as an indication that uh, it's investor behavior might not be perfectly statistically clear. Because a lot of it is, you know, if if a, a boomer ends up on a couple of properties, maybe one of them is owned by them and their kid. And maybe one of them owned by them and their other kid. And it looks like they own three properties, but it's actually they own
1: one and they're co-signing for two other ones. So. Almost almost subsidizing for their, for their children that likely couldn't afford it themselves. But, you know, we know that that does not make them quote-unquote investors. But we'll get to that because I think we've got a definition of what an investor is later on here. Um, you know, so I think between this... The financial systems review that we just did an episode on put out by the Bank of Canada and the CMHC's kind of recent tweet. The narrative is getting, I don't know, a little worrisome, a little scary here. Yeah, it does
0: seem like they're kind of walking things back or like I find that the government agencies like they really try and control the narrative and not induce fear. But then when something is bad, they want to be ahead of it. So they can be like, oh, we told you so. Yeah. like, look at us. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so CMHC tweets this out the other day. Canadian household debt has been rising for years and is now the highest among G7 countries. Um, the second half, this part's wild. It says, just re- read the second yeah, half if in, you can. In
1: 2021, household debt exceeded the size of the economy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause for a second there and read that sentence again because this is really wild in 2021 household debt exceeded the size of the canadian economy with three quarters of the debt tied up in mortgages
0: and and maybe we should um jump back to review those three because there was three paragraphs from the bank of canada's financial system review on the website like where they summarize it Mm -hmm. that were just it, to me it perfectly communicates how much the narrative has changed among reporting agencies and and the BOC so maybe we should read that before we get back to Statistics Canada report because the Statistics Canada report is referencing how how the BOC
1: um has acknowledged the these problems for sure we got to we got to explain it but i do want to say that you have you don't just have you don't have to say 3 sentences in here you say 3 really damning paragraphs so I just, yeah. Wanted to make that. Uh, wanted to make that here. The first of the three damning paragraphs that we're going to be going over is um, again. This is all from the Bank of Canada's financial system review, which we just did an episode on. In light of higher borrowing costs, the Bank of Canada is more concerned than it was last year about the ability of households to service their debt. More households are expected to face financial pressures in the coming years as their mortgages are renewed. The decline in house prices has also reduced homeowner equity and some signs of financial stress, particularly among recent home buyers, are beginning to appear. So a large negative shock, such as a
0: severe global recession with significant unemployment that further depresses house prices could increase loan defaults among households. If defaults on uninsured mortgages with negative equity were to occur at a large scale, this could result in sizable credit losses for Canadian
1: lenders. Okay, pretty damning so far. Now for the... This last part see the worst. It's pretty scary. Of, well. Three of three damning here. I get the last one? Great, thank you. <laughs> Elevated funding costs and persistent periods of stress can reduce the capacity of the banking sector to provide market liquidity. So essentially, things get worse in the economy, put stress on the bank, and now they aren't as liquid, which is not a good thing for a bank. This liquidity is crucial to financial stability, given the growing importance of non-bank financial intermediaries, such as asset managers, and their reliance on fixed income liquidity if a significant spike in demand for liquidity were to occur again people need money they need access to money if a significant spike in the demand for liquidity were to occur it could lead to a potential destabilizing decline in asset prices wow
0: damn damn man i uh,
1: i don't like that i don't like that one bit no, I don't I don't blame you. So let's let's maybe unpack that and break that down. What does that really mean, Dan? I mean, to me it means that
0: if we see problems in the economy, it could lead to banks wanting to lend less money and in order to and and that compounds the problem that makes the problem worse because if banks don't want to lend money, then we don't have a solution to the problem. Canadians use debt to solve problems and (laughs) we do. I mean, and if we don't have that, we don't have a way to get ourselves out of this and things just get worse. So, I, I mean, I think you can see all of the federal agencies acknowledging this problem and really making an effort to fix it right now with And it's just a matter of like, you're seeing extended amortizations um. We're not seeing anything happening on the buy side, which is really where, if if things do get bad, that that would be supported or supportive. Um, but we're seeing like AMs extended up to forty years on renewal or over forty years on renewal. I think something like thirty percent of all mortgages are over twenty five uh, year amortization right now. If they move that to the buy side, it would help prop prop it up. I just don't know if they can without making things bad bad right so anyway i mean uh, i'm also i'm
1: also hearing a little bit like is this possibly going to trigger a bank run if the people that have their money in a bank if they need to be a little bit more liquid right i mean i think it i think it poses issues for for both sides so
0: so here's my thing with a bank run in canada um canadians don't have any money and so we don't have any money to go run to. <laughs> yeah, like so. What like what cash are we going to take out of? I mean, it's not that we don't have any money, but like when you hear oh the excess savings and all of this stuff, it's like we don't. It's not like in the U.S. Like we just don't have that much cash. Like excess save the savings rate increasing is like a lot of it was equity, home equity. So we there's just nothing to run. Be <laughs> running know? into so, cash out our helocs, yeah. So. <laughs> Um, Anyway, let's get back to the staff can report here because we got a lot of ground to cover. So what
1: is an investor? We should probably know a thing or two about that considering we're approaching 100 episodes on this show. Um, In this analysis, owners are divided into three categories. Investors, investor occupants, and non-investors. I'm going to give you the stat can proper definitions in a minute, but basically an investor is defined as an owner who owns at least one residential property that is not being used as their pl- primary place of residence. So if you have a cottage, you are an investor
0: seems like a bit of a loose definition now, but, uh <laughs> yeah. but I
1: guess let's continue. They do go on to clarify that a bit. Um, you know, the investor category thus can include, among others, secondary residence owners, landlords, short-term rental owners, developers, and for-profit businesses and speculators. So, more
0: than one in five owners is an investor. For British Columbia, Manitoba, Ontario, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia combined CHSP data shows that a total of twenty one point nine percent of owners, sorry, were investors in twenty twenty. The proportion of investors was higher in Nova Scotia, over thirty percent, and New Brunswick at twenty nine percent, than in British Columbia, twenty three point three, Manitoba twenty, and Ontario twenty point
1: two. So I don't get it. They only study those provinces. Yeah, like I'm we're not sure a couple why.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure why, but that's all the data that is on here. Um, it says this article presents a detailed profile of residential real estate investors in the provinces of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Ontario, Manitoba, and British Columbia in 2020.
1: It documents the demographic characters of investors, including their age, sex, and immigration status. It also looks at the geographic distribution of investors in certain provinces. The article is the second in a series of residential real estate investors produced by the Canadian Housing Statistics Program, and that's the CHSP.
0: Yeah, so we will um, we'll go through some of the stuff from the first one as well if we have time. Um, so the key findings from this one are: among the provinces studied, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and British Columbia had the, the highest share of out-of-province investors and non-residents investors.
1: And the share of in-province investors owning three or more properties of housing stock ranged from 1.6% of all owners in New Brunswick to 2.9% in Ontario.
0: Amazing. Established immigrants, those who landed before 2010, comprised a higher share of investors than their share of the provincial
1: populations residents aged 55 and older represented a higher proportion of investors than their share of provincial populations interesting and women represented
0: around half of all resident investors in the five provinces but were underrepresented among in-province investors with three or more properties i actually have a bone to pick with this one cuz they they i don't know if they should use that word like it just uh, you'll you'll see like the data isn't really that extreme um relative to their share of the provincial
1: populations okay let's dive into the introduction here in recent years there has been a growing concern about the role of residential real estate investors in canada so, investors provide a much needed rental housing
0: stock, but they've also been found to exacerbate price volatility and run ups. Um, you know, 2017 being a good example, 2022 being another good example, and they can limit access for first time home buyers to the market.
1: And as house prices have increased sharply during the pandemic years, several reports indicated that investors had begun to play a more prominent role in the Canadian housing market. So
0: the CHSP or the Canadian Housing Statistics Program is designed to use comprehensive uh, administrative data um, to understand the role that these investors play in a series of publications. They say series, so I'm hoping that we'll have
1: another couple of these to to, to to shed more light. Yeah. So the article goes on to say, um, taken from an initial uh, article earlier this year, that it mainly focused on the share of properties used as investments across five provinces, including Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Ontario, Manitoba, and British Columbia by property type and by investor type. And we'll include some of that information as we get deeper into the report here. So in this
0: follow-up report article... They basically provide information on the profile of these investors in these five provinces, specifically demographic characteristics, and it distinguishes between the different types of investors to clarify their role in housing
1: markets. So back to that initial question again, before we begin here, what is an investor, Dan?
0: Yeah, or more specifically, what does it mean to StatCan in
1: the context of this report? Yes, good call. The analysis below classifies owners into one of three categories. Again, investors, investor occupants, and non-investors. So an investor
0: is an owner of at least one residential property. You already defined this one that is not used as their
1: primary place of residence. So this includes... A business or a government that owns at least one residential property, excluding Canadian non-profit organizations, given the predominance of businesses in this category, they will simply be referred to as a business investor.
0: The next is a person who is not a current resident of Canada and is a residential property owner, referred to as a non-resident investor. We also have a
1: person who lives outside the province where they own residential property, referred to as an out-of-province investor in the province of the non-principal residence. And a person who lives in the province and
0: owns two or more residential properties or owns a property with multiple residential units and does not occupy that property, those persons are referred to as in-province investors.
1: Now, by contrast, investor occupants own a single property with multiple residential units, one of which is their primary place of residence. For example, This category could include owners of a house with a laneway suite or a basement suite and owners of a duplex who live in one of those units and it's house hacking and, you know, renting out the other side or the basement or whatever.
0: Yeah. And there's some really cool data in regards to that in Vancouver area, especially later in this episode, they did like a whole little part on that. I think in the first report. Um, and then la- the last one is non-investors. And those are basically owners who are not an investor, not an investor occupant. Basically, people who own a single family property and live in it if it doesn't, and it doesn't have multiple <laughs> residential units. Um, not for profit businesses are also included in this category.
1: Very StatCan definitions of investors and non-investors. I I like it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we kind of just have to
0: do that because it'll explain. It's kind of like when you're reading a legal document, there's like all your definitions
1: at the beginning, right? Exactly. Yeah. So let's keep going here and let's look at the different investor types across the provinces. So the share of different investor types set out above can be compared by province This comparison is useful because different types of investors may have distinct purposes for owning investment properties and may thus have distinct demographic profiles and differing impacts on the housing market.
0: Yeah, and so among these types, one important distinction is between in-province investors with multiple properties that are part of the housing stock. So houses and then those who own one property in the housing stock and then only parcels of vacant land as an example in an addition or commercial properties. Um, vacant land is often adjoined to the property of the primary residence and is used in, as an extension of that property. So... They show a chart, but these types of investors, along with those who own two or more properties of vacant land only, are called in province investors uh, va- of vacant land. So they give it its own category because their their goal here is really to understand how it contributes to housing crisis issues or exacerbates the housing problem.
1: So if you've got if you own the lot next door for your kids to play in, you are part of the problem here. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. <laughs> StatCan also found that investors with that profile were similar to non-investors in terms of average income, assessed value of residential property holdings, and the relative absence of rental income. So you've got this extra piece of property, for instance, and it's not making you money. Now, when they are excluded, most provinces had similar rates of in province investors among all owners between 12.6% in Manitoba and 13.6% in Ontario with a lower rate in New Brunswick of a flat 10%. Awesome.
0: They also go into income levels of investors. I found this interesting. So out of province investors had the highest average incomes in all five provinces. They show this in table one compared to with all other types of investors among in-province investors those with 3 or more residential properties had the highest income across all provinces no surprise there um you know imagining that some of these people either needed a lot of income to buy those or are claiming mm-hmm. a lot of income from those followed by those with a single additional property in a different re- region so um a, a, a situation this is consistent with you know holding a potential r- uh, recreational property, as an example, so people with just one extra property are um obviously a little bit wealthier. So this is sh- again, they're alluding to that there's probably a bit of a a gap in the data. Or the data is pointing to cottages rather than purely investment properties.
1: Yeah, and you know, cottages are such a funny thing because for everyone that owns a cottage and and I think thinks, oh, I'm gonna use this on the weekends when I want it, and then I'll rent it out. I wonder how many people actually at least for the long term, you know, rent that out on a, on a medium term stay basis kind of thing. I think it's a lot more of a wishful thinking for, for a lot of people. But anyways, well, we have heard in the great
0: ads on this show that it isn't that hard to pop something up as an Airbnb. And it, and it honestly isn't. So, um, I mean, seriously, I think it is becoming more and more common that people are trying to introduce an income stream to subsidize their cottage thing. It's almost like, you know, you have the mortgage helper single suite, in, uh, in your house. Well, maybe get the mortgage helper or the cost helper, rent out two weeks of your cottage for the summer and,
1: and pay for your expenses for the whole summer for some of these assets, right? Love it. Now, in-province investors with two properties in the same region had the next highest incomes, while those with vacant land had the lowest incomes among all resident investor types. That's interesting. In most provinces investors who only owned vacant land in addition to their principal residence has an average income similar to those of non-investors and investor
0: occupants. BC has the richest investors with an average income of 95,000 across all of the different types of investors.
1: Yeah, interesting. Because remember, the Canadian national average salary is like I think it's like forty six or forty eight thousand. So that's quite a bit higher,
0: substantially higher. Yeah, for sure. It's almost like investment contributes to a better
1: income. Almost, but at the same time, it that still seems maybe a little low for you know people owning multiple properties. I mean, ninety five thousand at the end of it isn't isn't a ton of money. Do you think maybe rich people like understating their income? Oh, come on. Ontario comes in a close second at 90000 across all different types of investors. That's 90000 average income. And that's followed by Nova Scotia, then New Brunswick, and then Manitoba. Okay, so the next heading they have is absolutely fascinating here. It says, established immigrants are investors at higher rates than Canadian-born residents. It's Canadian dream, baby. Now, in previous releases from the CHSP, they have found that the share of homeowners who are immigrants in each province corresponds closely to the share of immigrants in the overall population provincially. In other words, immigrants appear to be able to access homeownership at a similar rate of Canadian-born residents. Among individual
0: resident investors, uh, however, immigrants were underrepresented relative to their share of provincial population in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick and Manitoba. Uh, This is mostly due to fewer recent immigrants, those who landed in Canada since 2010 being investors.
1: Now, established immigrants, on the other hand, made up a higher proportion of investors than their share of the population in these provinces. So for instance, in Ontario and British Columbia, both immigrants and in general, established immigrants were overrepresented among investors relative to their share of the provincial population. So overrepresented means there's
0: more of them, by the way. The assessed value of property holdings of immigrant investors tended to be higher than that of Canadian born investors in all 5 provinces so they're getting more or bigger bigger assets i guess
1: so for example the average assessed value of immigrants investors total property holdings was 2.2 million dollars in British Columbia compared with 1.61 million dollars for Canadian-born investors. A big so, gap. so that's a gap of you know over 600,000 dollars in property value. The
0: property holdings in Ontario, comparably, were on average 1.29 for immigrant investors versus 890,000 for Canadian-born investors. In other provinces, the differences in the average value of the total property holdings was smaller in absolute terms, so they don't even provide it in the report.
1: <laughs> now, in each province, though, most of the difference was explained by the fact that immigrant investors were likely to own a primary residence in a larger census metropolitan area where assessment values tend to be higher. So they're owning larger pieces of property in better areas or in more CMA. So in, you know, more of our city type areas. Um, And that tends to be higher than in other parts of the uh, respective
0: provinces. So when looking at investors with primary residences in the same um, areas, the difference in Average assessed value between immigrant and Canadian-born investors was smaller.
1: So no surprise coming from the next heading here, Dan. (laughs) The majority of investors are 55 and older. Oh, come on. They, They don't call them boomers for nothing.
0: Residents aged 55 years and older were overrepresented among homeowners relative to their share of population. This is consistent with the idea that purchasing a home often requires a lengthy period of time of saving and higher incomes, usually associated with longer experience in the labor market. So basically they had more time to make money and stack assets.
1: Yeah. Hold up, hold up, hold up. I just came up with something. I don't know. You tell me this, this might be good or not, but would you agree that time in the market is better than timing the market? You know what, Nick? I've never heard that one before. I suppose I would say that. Okay. Well, you know, put me down as the uh, source for that one. That's another Nick Hill original, everybody. Remember <laughs> we heard it first. <laughs> so
0: for similar reasons, residents 55 and older were m- even more overrepresented among investors in all five provinces, they constituted the majority of resident investors from 57.1% in Ontario to 66.9% in Nova Scotia, despite being a minority of the adult population in each province from, I mean, there were 39.8% in Manitoba to 48.3% in New Brunswick of the total population.
1: Crazy. Now, conversely, Canadians younger than 35 years old were significantly underrepresented among investors relative to their share of the adult population. If that personally hurts you as an under 35 year old, same, I'm right there with you. That's part of the problem. This underrepresentation among investors was even more pronounced than their underrepresentation among homeowners and likely occurred for similar reasons fewer income earning years, make it more difficult to accumulate the financial capital required for home ownership and especially for real estate investments. Well, I say to that challenge, accepted. <laughs> Love it. Okay. Now let's talk about male and female splits that statistics Canada has discussed among their investor reports here as well. So for the most part, Women and men constituted a similar proportion of investors in the five Providence studied here. Uh, among resident investors, the proportion of investors who are male ranged from 50.2% in British Columbia to 56.2% in New Brunswick. But it goes on to support the
0: heading of this section, which we mentioned before, which says that men are overrepresented among investors with 3 or more properties. This indicates that there was a limited difference between men and women in the propensity to engage in real estate investment. It is notable though that men were overrepresented among investors with 3 or more
1: properties in the housing stock. That
0: comes directly from the StatsCan report because I'm going I think we're going to
1: rebut that a little bit. Well, I mean they they make the comment but when I look at the chart, you know, quote unquote overrepresented seems to be a bit of an overstatement. And despite this, the average assessed value of investors' real estate holdings was similar actually between men and women in all of the five provinces studied. Yeah. And by that language, the chart would also show that
0: men are underrepresented as non-investor owners in the 40% range across all provinces as owner occupiers. We know that women are better at buying their primary residence than men statistically. But yeah, for investment, it's close to 50-50 male-female for owners of two properties. Then it jumps up to, you know, slightly, let's say 54 54- Ish percent in Nova Scotia, um, over sixty percent in New Brunswick, fifty three percent in Ontario, um, fifty five in Manitoba, and just barely over fifty percent in BC for three or more properties.
1: Yeah, now there is a significant presence of investor occupants in urban BC.
0: Yeah, I'd love, this is my the thing. One thing I was excited to talk about. I love this data because I think it it says a lot about some of the stuff we talk about on this show here in regards to house hacking, adding units and income to your existing dwelling, turning your existing dwelling into an income property so that you can later exit it and go to another one. And this is a big solution to the under 35 problem that we just discussed.
1: So in some expensive urban markets, densification has produced a high number of properties with multiple residential units, such as rental apartment buildings and condominium apartment towers. Well, densification can take away, can sorry, can take the form of large buildings. It can also emerge through more incremental forms of density, such as single detached homes with a secondary suite, a laneway house, or you know, duplexes, triplexes, etc. This latter form of density can produce high rates of investor occupants, people who own a single property with multiple residential units within that property. And they themselves live in one of those units. So I own a triplex. I rent out two of the units. I live in one of them. And the, their data
0: shows that this is especially prominent in urban BC. So in Vancouver, 12.5% of owners were investor occupants, which is, is Big. That's meaningful from my perspective. That tells me that policy is working. In, in the core of the CSD in the city of Vancouver, this was 15.9%. This may be attributable to municipal efforts by the city of Vancouver to promote incremental density such as laneway houses, secondary suites, and duplexes. The share of investor occupants among all owners was also higher than the provincial average in the CMA of Victoria at 12.2%.
1: Yeah, so in Victoria's CMA, the rate of investor occupants was actually highest in the CSDs of Saanich. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I thought you were the BC guy. Are you supposed to know how to say all this stuff? Yeah, I've only been in Victoria like once as a kid. Beautiful, beautiful spot. But uh, I forgot how to pronounce all the cities there, you know. Um, Saanich at 13.3% and Colwood at 146 and Langford at 165 So. As noted above, uh, investor occupants had an average income that were similar to those of non-investors, but lower than investor incomes in the four CMAs of British Columbia: Abbotsford, Mission, Kelowna, Vancouver, and Victoria. So, in the Vancouver CMA, the average income for
0: investor occupants was sixty-five thousand, compared with sixty-five thousand for non-investors, but then a hundred thousand for in-province
1: investors. Now, despite this, the average assessed value of the properties owned by investor occupants was typically higher than that for non-investors in British Columbia. So, in the CMA of Vancouver, the properties of investor occupants had an average assessed value of, get this, 34.7% higher than the properties of non-investors. While in Victoria, they were just 6% higher. That, to me, is... All you need to hear that,
0: you know, maybe it won't show up on the income side, at least not immediately, but it will show up on the asset value and the AUM assets under management or on the net worth. And I guess so it really comes down to like, and we talk about this a lot on the show, you know, setting the right goals are what is your goal? Cause some people aim for income first, some people aim for net worth. And if you know, if you want to stay in an urban area, income in a lot of cases isn't going to be there. You might be breaking even on that. Mm-hmm. But exactly. but you will be at you know if you're using it to justify adding a, a unit to the property, you will be increasing your asset value. So, uh, a few other cool stats from the original reference February third report. Um, I think we
1: have time for these. There we can just rip yeah. through. Yeah, them quickly let's go through a couple yeah. of these. Okay. So in Nova Scotia, this is crazy. More than one in 20 houses is used as an investment property by a person living outside of the province or the country.
0: So the this analysis by property type found that investors were drawn more to condos than uh, than houses. And this Varied from I think it was an overall average of 15.6 for all five provinces. By comparison, the same statistics for condo apartments was 39.4%. For the five provinces, a total of 918,000 houses were used as an investment, 584,000 of which were in Ontario the regional analysis uh, found that the proportion of homes used as an investment was generally higher in more touristic regions where there may be more cottages.
1: Like Bankcroft, for instance? Yeah. <laughs> In-province investors owned as investment properties between 87 of the houses in New Brunswick and 12.4% in Nova Scotia. And as such, they owned more houses used as investments than all other types of investors combined love it
0: this this last one here is interesting condominium apartments are more popular with investors than houses the share of condominium apartments used as an investment was higher than for houses varying from 22.6 percent in new brunswick to 41.9 percent in ontario so and and totaling just under
1: 40 percent for all five provinces uh, now, although this share was higher in Ontario and British Columbia, 362 than in Manitoba at 29.2% and New Brunswick, this does not appear to be attributed to the large, census metropolitan areas, the CMAs in those provinces.
0: So in fact, the, the rate of condominium apartments used as investments was lower in... Toronto and Vancouver than the rate uh, or than the rest of their respective provinces. So in those cities, you're actually seeing more and more people using ownership as a, or sorry, using condos as an ownership tenure, I guess, from an affordability perspective.
1: Yeah. Now in Toronto and Vancouver, CMA's investment properties were concentrated in the downtown cores. In both Toronto and Vancouver, there was a higher proportion of investment properties in the core census subdivisions in Vancouver CMA and in Greater Vancouver.
0: So the CSD was there that CSD was one exception with a higher proportion of houses and condominium apartments used as investment than other CSDs in the region. This is consistent with other trends observed for Greater Vancouver. According to the 2021 census, the CSD had a higher proportion of renters. When we talk about the country moving towards a renter's economy, um, 57.3% of households in that area rent, by the way, than in the rest of the CMA.
1: Yeah, no, I think, you know, the difference is, is partially due to probably the, the very high number of students who attend the University of British Columbia, UBC, which is located in that area. And Dan, we know this from other university towns, for instance, Kingston and Queens that we've studied at extent. Um, and, you know, the 30,000 plus, uh, population, student population, among other things that, that kind of, transitionally comes and goes seasonally in in there as well yeah and
0: statistically students are more likely to be renters so it makes sense that that area had the highest non-residents ownership rate as well uh, 14.9 percent in in the entire area in 2020 so
1: what uh what do we think about all this yeah i mean my final thoughts would be um you know, it's, it's funny as, as an investor myself. And, you know, the, the horrible thing is, is in some circles, being a real estate investor in Canada is an amazing thing. But in other, th- other circles, it has a bit of a negative connotation. And I think that just really comes from, um, you know, a combination of people being naive and people being ignorant and, and thinking that investors have created a, housing bubble and have created uh, a housing uh, supply shortage etc when really if you look at it the the numbers don't say that and and really investors actually play a key role in bringing more units to market probably more so than just about any other facet of the population so you know slightly biased opinion i think this paints uh investors as a very good thing and i also think it sheds a bit of light on you know gender and and immigration status and how those things they often get confused or lost how they actually play a role and and have a serious impact on on who is an investor
0: for sure i don't have much more to add than that other than you know there's this idea i think that a lot of people are or a lot of speculators are leaving houses vacant. And we saw the vacant home tax go in in Toronto. Then there was very few units that were claimed as vacant. And I think the idea here is that we are seeing more and more investors actually creating housing rather than just sitting on it and speculating. And that doesn't make any money anymore. So like new, (laughs) anybody buying property now, I mean, you don't really have an incentive to leave something vacant. Let's be real. So As a driving principle, if we can, as investors, Canadian real estate investors, buy property, use it to create units, to create value, Um, that has social good, but it also will guarantee that we have tenants, right? If we're buying things that society needs. So do that and
1: you'll do well. Love it. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. This was our look at Statistics Canada and what they consider an investor. Hope you got a ton of value out of it. If you have any questions for Dan and I, just shoot us an email, find us on social media, and we would love to connect with you. Thanks so much. and We'll see you next time. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037.
0: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.